Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. God's people are often referred to as exiles upon the earth, people living in a foreign land, among a foreign culture. If that's the case for God's people individually, what does it mean for the church? This is a three-part series about how to be a church in exile. All right, welcome to Grace Life. You guys doing well? All right. Well, hey, before we get into the message today, I want to give you a little update on where we are with the building. Yeah, somebody excited about that? People are always asking where we are and what's going on. So here you go. Who wants to see that happen sometime soon? Yeah. All right, cool. So here's an update on where we are financially. We've had uh, a little over $1,006,000 pledged so far. Uh, we have 164, I believe, families or individuals who are committed to being a part of that process. And I believe so far we've had over 450 2,000 of that come in. Now, most of that is just slight updates of what you've seen before. So now let me give you something you haven't heard before. Who's ready for some new news? Yeah. So here's where we are. If you know anything about the banking mortgage crisis since 2008, it has become very, very difficult for churches to get financial backing and to get lending. And so that's one thing that we've been working on for so long. But we now finally have that secured and we have a letter of intent with a an institution. It's actually a Christian church. Uh, what is it? Hedge fund. Christian hedge fund uh, that builds churches. That's what they exist to do. How cool is that? So we now have financial backing. And so what that means is that we are finalizing all of the process of design and permits and hope to break ground somewhere in the first quarter of next year. Now that's worth getting excited about. Yes, there you go. So what can we do over the next two to three months while we are waiting uh, on all of that stuff to happen? I'm going to give you two words. What do you think those two words are? Pray and get. Man, you guys are good. Check this out here. There you go. All right. So specifically, you can pray about all of the design and the contracts. There's a lot of just paperwork that has to go on. We think we've got about six to eight weeks worth of that stuff. Uh, finalizing pricing and all that sort of things. And then the one that I really think we need to pray a lot over is favor with permitting with Richland County. They're not known for being easy. Uh, so if you would, just go ahead and start praying that when we walk in and say, can you approve this, that the person who picks it up just suddenly has a heart from God to help make that go smoothly and uh, that we can get that done. Uh, I would hate to see that we need to spend somewhere in the three, four, six month range of just waiting on a building permit. So let's start praying now that that won't happen. Second of all, so what's going to happen over the next uh, two to three months in this process is we're going to see the end of the year, which might mean year-end bonus opportunities for some of us. And then the second thing is the, the tax return season. Now, look, like I said, there was about 164 families or individuals already said, I want to be a part of this. But this is a great opportunity for someone else who's new to the church since then or someone who's been thinking, I'm not sure, are, we, are they going to do this? Are they not going to do this? And this may be a time for you to get involved or to get more involved. And here's the reason. When we break ground, at that point, we sign our loan. And at that point, we take out a certain amount of money that we're borrowing. And from that day forward, we owe a certain amount of money back and a certain amount of interest. As much cash as we have on hand, we reduce that loan amount. So right now, we're taking that loan down 452000 
for every thousand or five thousand or ten thousand or those of you that just have way too much money hundred thousand or a million dollars that we can take that number down over the next two three at most hopefully four months as we go through this process then that is money that we're bringing the loan down interest we're not paying and so just want to encourage you to pray about that because we specifically can reduce that loan dollar for dollar over the next three to four months so hopefully that'll give you uh something to think about pray about so good everybody excited Woo! All right, so there we go. All right, well, we're starting a new series today, and when you heard that little video intro to the series, you might have thought, hey, that sounds kind of familiar. That sounds very much like something we just did not too long ago. I wonder if somebody back there pushed the wrong button. So let me tell you where, where this is coming from and what we're doing. Uh, if you know, we usually plan what we're preaching about a year out, and so uh, about uh, September and October of this year, we were doing a series through the book of Daniel talking about living in exile, a life in exile, what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. And while we were doing this series, I felt God prompted me with a question. What if everybody does what you say? What if everybody actually begins to live like they're living in exile, like Daniel did in Babylon, like a Christian in a non-Christian world, and they actually begin to function differently? Will that mean something to you as a church? If Christians in exile are different, is a church in exile different? And so I thought, hey, we need to stop and talk about this. So we changed what we had planned for these three weeks because what I want to do for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three things that I believe God has put on my heart for us as a church that we need to address. Now, when we talk as individuals, we say, what does it mean to define an individual? We use words like personality or character. But I think there's one word that's more important than any other word when we define a group. So if we're going to talk about us as a group, I think the most important word is culture. And so there are some things that I think God would want to see more a part of our culture than has been in the past. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest and say that I think these are some things we can improve upon. These are some areas where we can grow. Every church has some things it does great, and every church has some things it can do better at. And so the three things I want to talk about over the next three weeks are three things that I feel God said you could do better at, you could improve at, and make a part of your culture that when someone comes into the church, they recognize this is who you are as a people, because that's what we talked about as a life in exile, that people would recognize you were a follower of Jesus. And so the first thing we're going to start with out of these three topics is the idea of being a disciple. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But let's be honest, disciple is an incredibly churchy word. I mean, we don't really know what it means very much. How many of you wake up and say, hey, honey, I'm going to be disciple today? Or you go up to somebody else, will you disciple me? I mean, we just don't really use that word. And we kind of have an idea of what it means, but even in our workplaces, no one uses that word. You don't go and get a new job and they say, well, today you're going to have discipleship class. No, they say you're going to have a training seminar. And if they give you an older employee to mentor you, they don't say, here's the person who's going to disciple you. They say, here's who's going to train you. So we just don't ever use this word disciple. So if we're going to talk about it, let's stop and define it for our purposes today. So one word that we could all use, I think everybody would agree upon, if I said, what is a disciple? One of the first words that would come up is follower. Anybody would have thought that word? Follower. So we think if we're a disciple, we're a follower of Jesus, which is great. The problem with that is it still leaves a gap in our understanding for many of us because you grew up and you went to elementary school and you played a game called follow the leader. 
And the only real reason teachers ever let us play follow the leaders because they wanted to make sure we all ended up in the cafeteria together when we went to lunch, right? And nobody just like went somewhere else. And so the way you did that is you had to give everybody a game to win. And so here's the problem with follow the leader. All you really have to do is make sure you can still see them and end up somewhere in the proximity of where they end up. And that's not really what it means to follow Jesus. When we talk about following Jesus in the sense of a disciple, we really mean to become like Jesus, not just end up in the same room with him, right? And then on top of that, if we say, well, I'm following Jesus, and Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, we're like, man, he's so far out there, I can't see him, I guess I'll just go to church. We don't really know what it means to be a disciple. So I think for us, a better definition would be to use the word student. And what are we a student of? We're a student of living the way Jesus taught. See, here's the thing. Jesus came to the earth and Jesus said, the way that you know to worship God, that way, no, 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 let me show you something better. The way that you know to relate to other people, uh uh-uh, let me me teach you a better way. The way that you live your life, no, actually, you should live your life like this. Jesus came saying, the way that you live is not the way I want you to live. So if we're going to talk about being disciples, I think we should talk about being students of living the way that Jesus taught. So I want to just go ahead and kind of throw out a a disclaimer or talk about an elephant that might be in the room i don't know how much you may know what goes on in the church world but uh there's actually some finger pointing and some some like stone throwing in the area of discipleship in the church world and the reason for it is this people will go to big churches uh you know pastors will criticize other pastors or so forth it's really sad shouldn't happen but i'm just going to be honest pull back the curtain a little bit and tell you what we're dealing with and people will say look if you go to a big church or you go to a fast-growing church, they're not discipling people. They're just collecting people. They're just getting more and more people, and and lots of people are showing up, but they're not really discipling anyone. No one's really growing. Well, as the pastor of a fast-growing church, I get a little offended at that remark. I even get a little defensive, and for years I have uh, kind of verbally fought back with someone who might say that and said, no, 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 wait a minute, because here's the point. I I stand here every single week, and I know the majority of you that are sitting there, and I watch people listen as I teach God's Word, and I I see people take notes. (laughs) See, I didn't even have to say it. And I see people take notes, and I know that those people go home, and they pray over that throughout the week, and they try to apply it to their lives and say, God, how should I become more like what I've learned? What what does this mean to me? And so I know that people are in a large crowd and somehow are still being discipled. Your life is still being changed. I see people every week listen to these things. And I've had people come back and say, I heard your sermon online and I want to do this because of it. I know that people are confronting uh, sin issues in their life and they're growing and they're becoming more like God in a crowd. I know that that's happening. But to be fair, I also know that there are people who don't confront sin issues and there are people who don't grow or change because they can hide in a crowd. And so the real question is, is there another way? Is that the only way? Is there something that maybe we can add to what we're doing? If you know Jesus, Jesus had crowds. He was always surrounded by crowds, and he was always teaching the crowds. But Jesus also would try to get away from the crowds. And although he would offer the crowds everything he had at the moment, he would pull away, and he had a group of 72, and the 72 got more than the crowds got. And then he would pull away from the 72 and he would work with 12 and the 12 got more than the 72 that got more than the crowds. And at times he would even pull away from the 12 and only be with three and the three got more than the 12 that got more than the 72 that got more than the crowds. I went to school as a music major. And so the question that I would ask you is, can you learn in a group of 600 people? Yeah. 
Could you learn more if you could sit down with that teacher one-on-one? Probably. So one of the things we had to do as a music major is they would teach us some subjects like music theory or music history. They would do in large rooms of hundreds of people. So big one time I had to get glasses because they started writing on the board. I couldn't even see it. That's when I discovered I needed glasses. Anyway, so we could learn these things in big groups. But if you wanted to actually learn how to be a musician, I'm a concert pianist. That's what my first degree is in, is learning how to play like Mozart and Beethoven and Chopin and all that kind of cool stuff. So that's fun. Anyway, they would say, go find another person. Go find a teacher, a professor who knows how to do this better than you. Out of all of the professors here, find one that you want to play like, one that you want to be like, one that you want to study with, and sit down with that person one-on-one so that you can become a musician. In large groups, I could learn all kinds of things about music, but I could never become a musician until I had one person who sat down and said, let me show you how to do this. What, what do you do when you run into this stumbling block? I don't know how to do this. What do you, let me show you how I learned how to do it, one-on-one. And so what I want to suggest to you today is that if we look at Scripture, we're going to discover that you can be a disciple in large crowds. And I just want to give you some some positive reinforcement. It is good that we are listening in large crowds. We are hearing the teaching of God. We are taking notes. We are applying it to our life. That is good. And so if you are here doing that, you are a disciple of Jesus. But I also want us to ask the question, Is there something we can do that would help us be a disciple better or faster? Things that we can grow and do. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But we're not, as you may think, going to look at how Jesus raised up disciples. Because people too often just disconnect. Oh, Jesus, 2,000 years ago when he was God, I don't think I can do that. So here's what we're actually going to do. We're going to look at someone who is way more like us. We're going to look at someone who became a follower of Jesus after Jesus had died. And so this person had to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus when they're never going to get to meet him in the flesh on planet earth. And yet this person went on to actually become one of the most influential apostles, wrote the majority of our New Testament, and you and I, our lives probably would not be the same without this person and what they have done and their impact in our lives today. And that guy's name is Paul, if you don't know who he is. So if you do have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9, verse 19. If, you're, if you want to, it'll just be on the screen behind me. But let me give you the backstory before we jump in. Paul actually began as a guy named Saul. That was his name before they changed his name. And his name reflected a life change. You see, Saul grew up as an absolute expert Jew. He was potentially going to someday turn out to be a high priest because he was taught by the best of the best in the Jewish world. He knew everything better than anybody else probably around him. He he just has a great pedigree, which he talks about in Scripture at one point. He lists all of the different things, and it made him the man that to, to watch. Like, if you were going to look for who was the up-and-coming, it was Saul. And so because Saul was such a great Jew and, and such a great leader in the Jewish world, he hated those people who followed that guy named Jesus that was undermining the Jewish faith. You see, the Jews were looking forward to a Messiah, but a lot of them didn't agree that Jesus was the guy. Some did follow Jesus and many did not. And so Saul was angry about the ones who did, and he wanted to do everything he could to stop it, so much that he put people in prison, that he had them tortured, and in some cases even killed. And so at one point, Paul was traveling to a city called Damascus, and as he was on his way to that city, He met Jesus. Now, again, not in the flesh, but he was knocked to the ground, blinded, and heard Jesus speaking to him from heaven saying, why do you persecute me? That'll get your attention, don't you think? 
I mean, just see if that ever happens when you're walking in to do something God told you not to do. So he ends up in this city for three days, blind, unable to see and know what's going on, does not eat, does not drink. Obviously, you'd be in that situation as well. God sends someone to him, prays for him, he receives his sight, and we're going to pick up the story with what he does next. So we're in Acts chapter 19, uh, chapter 9, verse 19 says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Well, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. <laughs> what goes around comes around. You hang out with him. Yeah, there you go. And, but their plot became known to Saul, and so they were watching at the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, this is not our main point, so just let's pick up a few things real quick. Number one, as soon as he starts following Jesus and he can't meet Jesus because Jesus has already been crucified, resurrected, and Jesus is in heaven, he thinks, I, I've got to learn something about what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, I would be the best Jew, but I don't know anything about following Jesus. I never listened to him. I never went to his speeches and his rallies. I never had one of his bumper stickers. I don't know anything about the guy. So I'm going to go hang out with his disciples. I'm going to go be with people who do know and let those people teach me something. The second thing he does is immediately he begins saying, I don't know a lot, but I know one thing. Jesus is the son of God, and I'm going to tell everybody that I meet. So he immediately begins doing something. He doesn't wait years like we tend to do as Americans. Like, well, you know, if I'm a pastor, someday I'll preach. Otherwise, I'm just going to church. That's all I do. I just go to church. So he immediately begins telling people what he knows. As a result of telling people what he knows, he immediately has other people start following him. Like, I hear you've been following Jesus for like a week now, but you've got something that I could learn from you. Let me learn from you. And in this very short time span, he goes from hanging out with the disciples to suddenly having his own disciples. And so the question might be, how in the world did this really happen? And how did Paul grow? So let's see what happens next. Paul, a few years later, actually the story is about three years later. In verse 26, it says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So what happened is Paul did leave Damascus and he went and he did some other stuff. We don't know a lot about these three years. We know a little, not a lot. But at this point, he's decided, I want to go to Jerusalem and I want to meet the dudes. I want to meet Peter and James and all these guys. Because like if there's anybody who can tell me how to really follow Jesus, these are the guys. I've learned a lot. I want to go and meet the authorities that are still on earth. Well, here's the problem. They were all afraid of him. For they did not believe he was a disciple. Which is just common sense. They're thinking this is like a James Bond move. This guy's like double agent. He's just trying to infiltrate and then he's going to whack them all. You know, because that's what he was doing before, right? And so actually, we know from the book of Galatians, this was about three years after the Damascus event. We also know that most of the disciples didn't meet with him. He actually only got to spend a little bit of time with James and a little bit of time with Peter. So he didn't learn a lot from those guys. So how did Paul ever learn? And who was teaching Paul during those three years? But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. See, here's the thing. Barnabas took a risk. Barnabas said, I heard there was a guy who was the leader on the other side. He was the number one guy on the other side trying to kill us. If there's any chance that this guy has actually come over to us, he could become our number one. Because this is not some small dude. This dude was an expert in the law, the expert in following the Jewish ways and the religious ways. Imagine if we could get their leader, he could become our leader. I will risk my life for that. And so Barnabas went and personally invested in Paul and taught him everything he knew. Then when he decided to go to Jerusalem, 
and nobody will back him. Paul steps up and says, I'm sorry, Barnabas steps up and says, I risked my life. Now I'm going to risk my reputation. Everything that I know, I will stand up and speak for Paul. You guys need to listen to him. Not a lot of success there. So they go on and Barnabas continues to mentor Paul to teach him everything that he knows. So we're going to flip over to chapter 11, verse 22. We're going to pick up the story here. Crazy things started happening. You see, if you remember, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. Some people believed that was Jesus. Some people didn't. The rest of the world didn't care. But suddenly, the rest of the world, non-Jews, have started following Jesus. And they're like, what in the world is going on? And so here we are. It says the report of this. What? Non-Jews becoming believers came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so what did they do? They said, we got to send somebody to teach them something. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So he goes, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Great description of Barnabas. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas now has an assignment to teach all of the people in Antioch what it means to follow Jesus. What is the first thing that Barnabas does? Is he gets out a book? No. He designs a class? No. He sits down with a bunch of people and tells them his story? No. The first thing he does... So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. See, here's what Barnabas is doing. He's saying, look, I've taught Paul everything I know. Here's a great opportunity for me to teach Paul a little bit more. We're getting ready to build a church. Little did they know, I don't know if they knew, the most influential church in the New Testament. This church was the one that planted every other church. When you read about things like Ephesus and all of these other places and those books that you read, they came out of what Paul and Barnabas did out of Antioch. This church was the church that made everything else happen. And so Barnabas says, look, before I start this church, before I try to teach anybody anything, let me get Paul because Paul can learn how to do this so that we can both go out and do it. Paul can learn from me as we learn it. See, Paul can help answer some questions about what the old Jewish law meant and all of that stuff, but I can help Paul understand how to teach people to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. Barnabas became one of the most important people in history because you and I would look and say, what in the world would we do without Paul? I mean, Paul wrote 14 books of our New Testament. Without Paul, we wouldn't have things like Romans and, and the, the Corinthians and the uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and the Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus. I probably left out a couple others, who knows? And, and we wouldn't have any of those. But here's the other thing. As soon as Paul gets mentored by Barnabas, he says, I should teach somebody else. And so he goes and finds somebody like Timothy. And he says in the book of Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was one of those non-Jewish Greek people. I'm just telling you, that's weird. Y'all got to understand, this was crossing every racial, political, social line that an expert Jew goes and finds a Greek dude and disciples him in how to follow Jesus. This would have gotten stares when they walked into Starbucks together back in the day. I mean, this is not normal. Because we're going to see a story in a minute of something else that probably would not be normal even in our day. So here's what we have. We have Paul getting guys like Timothy, and he had guys like Titus. He even included a guy named Luke. Y'all know what about Luke? He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So again, you think, what would we not have without Paul? Let me ask you the real question. What would we not have without Barnabas? What would we not have without somebody who said, let me help? Paul, 
I believe Paul was called to do something with his life. They're going to put a graphic on the, the screen right here to help us look through this. A guy named Barnabas trains Paul. Paul trains a guy named Timothy. Timothy becomes a pastor. He leads the church in Ephesus, pretty famous church. Barnabas, I'm sorry, Paul becomes a church planter, an evangelist, an apostle, and writes the majority of our New Testament. All of this, everyone's destiny was dependent upon Barnabas saying, I think I've got something that I can teach you. The question, is your growth, maybe even your destiny, on hold because you cannot name a Barnabas who has personally discipled you? I think being able to name a person is one of the most important things we can do. I would love it if we had the time and I could just pass a microphone around the room, open mic. Name a person who over a period of time spent time with you and individually is responsible. If you'd say, the number one reason I am where I am today is because of this person. And then I want to clarify and say, let's make sure it's somebody who trained you up in how to follow Jesus, not someone who made you a great basketball player and so you'd name a basketball coach. I mean, I could tell you that I'm, I'm incredibly organized and OCD and a, and a, you know, focus on all that kind of stuff today because of my scoutmaster. My scoutmaster is one of the most influential people in my life. I became an Eagle Scout because of him. But he didn't help me follow Jesus. So that's not what I mean when I say name a name. I'm not asking because your math teacher was awesome and you became a mathematician. No. I'm saying, can you name the name of a person who personally made you the follower of Jesus that you are, the disciple that you are? I think this is something that's greatly missing because I think right now many of us are struggling to come up with a name. More importantly, and maybe even harder, is can you name a person that is doing that right now? Who do you meet with on a very regular basis, hopefully, maybe weekly, who is helping you become a better disciple of Jesus? Can you name that person? I became a believer, actually. I grew up in church my whole life, and I became a believer in high school. Didn't really do a whole lot with it. But when I got to college, I started hanging around with people who actually wanted to live like this. And they were always talking about, well, hey, I was meeting with so-and-so last week, and we were talking about what God's doing in my life. I was like, what? I mean, this is weird. Because like, oh, I did. When I was young, I go to church. You go to church, you watch the dude with the robe, he talks to you, you go back home, you eat fried chicken. That is all Jesus wants from you. At least that's what I thought, right? I mean, that's the way I was raised. And so I uh, get into college and these guys are doing this. I thought, well, they're, they're getting like more mature than me. And I noticed people who were just believing in Jesus a month ago now suddenly know more about the Bible than I do. And I grew up in church my whole life. I'm like, I, I got to do something about this. So there was a friend of mine and, and he was actually really good with meeting with some people one-on-one. -on -one. His name was Scott. And I said, hey, Scott, would you, would you teach me something? Would you help me? I don't even know what words I use. I just said, well, you know, will you teach me how to follow Jesus? He's like, Sure. And so we decided, how can I get around Scott a lot? So first thing, I'd give him his roommate. So we got an apartment together for my senior year. It's like, I can be around him all the time, 3 o'clock in the morning. Hey, Scott, I was just reading the Bible. What does this word mean? What is this stuff? What is propitiation? Does anybody know what that word means? It's in the Bible over and over. I would annoy him wherever he went. He was the volunteer assistant youth pastor. Actually, truth is, probably wouldn't use the word pastor because that, that means like qualifications. So we'd probably call him the volunteer assistant youth guy. So I said, can I be the volunteer assistant to the volunteer assistant youth guy? And I became that. I was just wherever Scott was, whatever Scott did, like Barnabas and Paul, wherever he was, I was there. And then at some point, our, our campus pastor, he was actually the associate pastor of our church, but he led the campus ministry at our college. And so I went to this guy, his name was Daryl. And I said, Daryl, will you meet with me every week? Because I think I'm actually supposed to become a pastor. Will you teach me something? 
And he said, well, let me pray about it first because I can't meet with everybody at that level. I can only meet with a few at that level. That's what Jesus did. Did you all know that? And so he, he, he said he only meets with four people every single week at that level. And so I managed to get to be one of those four. And so every week he said, you come and we're going to sit down and you're going to tell me what you're memorizing in Scripture. You're going to tell me what you're reading in the Bible and you're going to have questions for me and I'll do my best to answer. You, you ask me what I can do to help you grow. And I met with Daryl every week. That relationship became so important that Daryl performed my wedding in Romania. What a relationship. See, I think sometimes we don't do this well because we grow up in the church. Non-believers actually do this better than us. We grow up in the church, and so we just go to church, and we get the idea. The whole point of being a Christian is go to church, go to heaven. Go to church, go to heaven. Go to church, go to heaven. That's it. And so we go to church. Someday we actually discover Jesus died for us. We call Jesus our Lord and Savior. And guess what we do next week? Go to church. And the week after, go to church. And we just go to church. And that's all we ever do. But if you meet non-believers, what they do is they suddenly discover, like, I wasn't going to church. I need to go to church, but I also need to find a, a person who knows this stuff and say, teach me something. Because we have a guy in our church. His name was Troy. And so how many of you know Troy? Some of you know Troy. And so anyway, here's the point. Our church was founded by a pastor named Jerry Daly, and Jerry believed that he was the pastor of Gold's Gym. He really did. And he preached a sermon on how he's the pastor of Gold's Gym. So he went to Gold's Gym, and he would talk to every person he could meet there and tell them about Jesus. And so specifically, he went and hired Troy. Troy was a trainer, and he hired Troy, so he had a captive audience. Troy was paid to listen to him for 30 minutes. And so he talked to Troy about Jesus until Troy was blue in the face, and eventually Troy became a believer. And once Troy becomes a believer, he says, okay, Jerry, now you got to teach me. If I'm going to follow Jesus, what does this mean? And so he sat down with Jerry almost every week, and he learned from Jerry. Jerry did his premarital counseling. He married a sweet, wonderful little Christian lady, and then, and then Jerry moves away. And so Troy comes to me and says, I need somebody to teach me. So I start meeting with Troy, and actually Mike right there. And Troy and Mike and I met every week almost for a year and a half, barring some holidays, and talked about what it meant to follow Jesus and just went through some really basic things. And then what did Troy do? What does he still do today? He's only been a believer for like two, three, maybe four years. Think about that, because some of you have been doing this for 20 or 30. And so Troy immediately looked around Grace Life and said, where is somebody? Where? Or he looked around Gold's Gym. He found a guy at Gold's Gym and a guy at Grace Life, and he said, can we meet every single week and let me teach you what I know about Jesus? I asked Troy to share with me. Here's what he said. It was through prayer for my future wife, now his current wife, that God sent me a man, Jerry Daly, and then you, Jimmy, to cultivate my faith. You both listened to my story, never passed judgment, and taught me more about his word and who he is. Since then, I've asked the Holy Spirit to lead me to others that are looking for more understanding of their own purpose for God's will. So what does this all mean for us? Let me tell you what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And that starts with, getting people to believe about Jesus and reaching people. And so I want to share with you a little bit about how we've been doing. Again, you'll understand why we're building a building. Here's what we've been doing over the last six years, what God has accomplished through Grace Life. And as you look at those numbers, you may think, I'm not sure what that means. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some parameters. Uh, in the church world, a healthy growing church grows by 10% a year at most. To grow beyond that, can actually become unhealthy unless we talk about what we're talking about today. And so if you look at those numbers, you can see, first of all, why we need to build a building, you know, because you keep doing that, you might end up with something like three services. You might need people to show up at noon. I mean, those crazy people, right? 
Here's what this shows you is that we are reaching people. Now the concern is people must grow up spiritually as the church grows up numerically. People must grow up spiritually as the church grows up numerically. And the people that join into Grace Life and say, I want to be a part of what you're doing, I just met Jesus, they are going to be a disciple however we are being disciples. They're just going to do what we're doing. And I want to suggest to you that we need to do what we've been doing. We need to continue to worship God in large groups. We need to continue to listen to messages, teaching on the Word of God. We need to continue to take notes and apply that to our lives. We need to continue to confront sin and, and do what we've done. We need to continue this. But I think that we need to improve upon doing what Jesus did, Barnabas did, Paul did, and Timothy did. And that means coming together, one-on-one or one-on-few. One-on-one or one-on-few. I believe our ability to actually change the lives of the people we reach is going to come down to meeting one-on-one, one-on-few, having names of people that are influential in our lives and being a name that is influential in someone else's lives. See, I believe what we see in Scripture is actually the secret is men raising up men and women raising up women. What we see in the Bible is that, that women who knew how to do this would go to younger women and say, I've learned how to follow Jesus and love my husband. And that's difficult sometimes. So let me help you. And there are men who say, I have learned how to follow Jesus and love my wife. Let me help you. That's what we see. People ask me all the time. When are you guys going to start a men's ministry? When are you going to start a women's ministry? And let me just go ahead and tell you, if you're talking about when are we going to start doing pancake breakfast on Saturday mornings, never. It's not who we are. It's not what we do. But we have always had men's ministry. We have always had women's ministry. What do we do? We do this. One-on-one, one-on-few. We have life groups. We have men's and women's groups. We have groups that keep going even when they're supposed to stop. They keep going all through the holidays, all through the summer. They do everything. And so I'm going to share with you another unlikely story, just as unlikely as Paul and Timothy were crossing racial barriers and social barriers and everything that you could think. These are two guys named Craig and Kelly in one of our men's life groups, and I want to read to you their story. So Craig says, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to use what God has shown me to help other men avoid some of the mistakes I made. God used the dissolution of my marriage to open my eyes. As a young husband and police officer, I never afforded my ex-wife the opportunity to express herself when we had arguments. After all, I couldn't afford to lose a fight out in the streets in my position as a police officer, and I certainly had no intention of losing one in my own home. Any men can identify with that? As a direct result of my foolish, selfish behavior early in my marriage, I effectively destroyed my wife's ability to communicate things that were important to her. By God's grace, I was given another chance at being a husband that put him first during my, uh, put him first and my wife second, yes, even ahead of my children, something I had felt miserably at during my first marriage. Once I found grace life and the essential need for worshiping God in a small group, it became instantly clear to me what I needed to do to help as many young men as possible avoid the pitfalls that face every man on some level. As God has extended his grace to me, I want to pass along my mistakes and some victories. 
As long as I'm able, I will share my experiences with anyone who wants to listen. So he met Kelly. Kelly says, I met Craig a couple of years ago through a men's life group. At the time that I decided to join the group, my life was filled with many changes. I'd just gotten married. My parents, after 35 years of marriage, decided to separate. And I was struggling spiritually after separating from a church that I had grown up in. In joining our men's group, I had hoped to find the guidance and direction on how to become a, a better spiritual leader and husband to my wife that I longed for. And while I faithfully attended our Bible study for a while, I had yet to connect with anyone, partly because of my private nature. He's an introvert. However, during one of our meetings, I mentioned how much I missed being able to discuss spiritual matters with my twin brother due to him moving away, getting a new job, and getting married. And I believe it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit set something in motion for both Craig and myself, because shortly after, Craig stepped up and said, hey man, let's do a Bible study together. Yeah. Not knowing Craig very well, I wasn't sure how to respond and wasn't sure how serious he was about the offer. Nevertheless, before I got onto I-20 from church that morning, it's a mile and a half from here in case you're wondering, he had given me a call and we decided to meet weekly to discuss the book of Matthew. Little did I know that our weekly studies of Matthew would transform into a friendship that would offer me the guidance and wisdom that I was seeking. While I admire many things about Craig, what is most impactful is his transparency and openness about the mistakes he made earlier in life. I can see how he has worked with God to learn from and become a better husband, father, and most importantly, a better Christian. I appreciate his obedience to the Spirit that day, for I have found a good friend and brother in Christ. Be a disciple, make a disciple. One-on-one, one-on-few. I know as I stand here reading this story, so many of you are thinking, man, I just wish I could have that. Well, I think that we all can. And so the thing that I believe we need in our culture is not something I can mandate. But it is a vision that I can share and hopefully see you lead, follow. And I believe it's something where I can put out a challenge and, and see how many will respond. And so that's really where I am today. And so what I want to do is, is challenge you. When you came in, on your seat was a card. And it was much like the Barnabas, Paul, Timothy graphic that we saw earlier today. Except this time, it's got blanks around you. And see, what this comes down to is, are you at a place where you don't really know how to love your husband or your wife? And you don't really know what some of the books of the Bible are or why you should read them. And you've never read all the way through the Bible and you don't have many answers, a lot of questions you do have. Maybe you're not sure how to handle money or how to worship or you don't know what to do with children who are struggling or just don't know how to obey. I mean, you're just like, what in the world do I do? You need to put a name in the top box. You need a Barnabas. You don't need another class. You need someone to walk through life with you. Hopefully like every week. Because here's the reality. We eat breakfast every day. What if you just said to someone, hey, can we do breakfast together one day a week? And will you teach me things that I don't know about how to follow Jesus and live the way that he taught? 
you eat lunch many days. Maybe instead you join them for lunch. Or maybe it's coffee after work on the way home one day a week. Some of you, on the other hand, here's where my real challenge is, is not to those of you that need to fill in the top box, but those of you that need to fill in the bottom. Because there are way too many people in this room that know something. Just like Paul, he didn't know anything except Jesus was the Son of God, but he was ready to say that. Some of you have made it through marriage. Doesn't mean you're great at it, but you could help somebody else make it as far as you have. Maybe some of you have had a great disaster. And you can share like Craig did what not to do. Maybe some of you know how to love your spouse. Maybe some of you know how to handle your money. Maybe some of you have learned a good way to get through the Bible. Maybe some of you have learned how to pray. And we saw in the story that, that Paul was off somewhere. on his. You know where he was? He was in Tarsus. You know where that was? That's where he came from. Paul did what almost every one of us does when we don't know what to do. When you get out of college and you can't get a job, you go home to mama. Paul was thinking, well, maybe somebody back home will, like, listen to me or something. Paul, Paul was kind of just off to the sidelines. And Barnabas went and grabbed Paul and said, let me help you. How about the story where Kelly says, I was an introvert. I was never going to ask. And Craig said, let me help you. You see, here's the reality. There are way too many Barnabases in Grace Life. You saw the growth stats. You see how fast we're growing. We have a lot of people coming and saying, Jesus is my king. What next? And we need Barnabases and female Barnabases. One on one, one on few. Men with men, women with women saying, let me teach you. I cannot make this happen. It's against fire code for me to chain the doors and make you buddy up before you leave. I wish I could, but I can't. All I can do is say, this is where we want to go. We want it to be a part of our culture. When someone comes in and starts following Jesus and says, how do I do this? You say, like the rest of us. Find a name. Get a name. Put a name in a box and have somebody that you meet with. Share with them what you know or let them teach you what you know, what they know. You get the point. All I can do is say, this is who we want to be. And if it's who we really want to be, then we will do it. Put a name in a box. If you believe that you've got something to offer, I personally would like to see the number of men's and women's life groups we have double when we start them back up in January. And so if you have anything in your heart to do that, drop by the white tent because Chris at the white tent is our life group's director. Let him know. If, if you're not sure, pray about it this week and then talk to Chris next week. He'll still be there next week. But we need people who would say, let me help. Because right now, Grace Life is growing up numerically. The question is, are we growing up spiritually? And only each of you can make that happen. I'll keep teaching the crowds. But I can't sit down one-on-one -on -one with everybody in Grace Life. They don't make that many hours in a week. You've got to do this. You have got to do this if you believe that this is the way to follow what Jesus told you. Amen? I want to close by reminding those of you who do not know, the very first step of being a disciple means you've got to recognize Jesus died for you, and now you want to live for him. It's not about going to church. It's, it's about saying Jesus is my personal king.
If you have never done that, I want to help you do that this morning. You do not have to do anything weird. You don't have to stand up or come down front. You can pray right where you're seated. Would you all join me? Let's pray something like this to ourselves and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for me. And now, I want to live for you. I want to make you king of my life. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.